Our Old Testament scripture reading is a responsive reading. It comes from Psalm 148. Look into your bulletin, you'll see. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. Now from Revelation chapter 19. Verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word of the Lord. We return to Revelation this morning. If you're visiting with us since May, 
we have been in a study in the book of Revelation, going through the entire book. The last Sunday that we were in the book of Revelation was November the 13th. Seems like yesterday. After uh, we were looking at, at uh, on the 13th, we were looking at Revelation chapter 18. And the next Sunday was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We had a Thanksgiving service that Sunday. And then uh, we came to the great season of Advent and were focused on the coming of the Son of God in flesh. And what a good time that was in December and the first part of January. But now we've, we have returned to the 19th chapter. So let's go there. And before we do, before we open God's word to that passage, let's pray. Because if you and I are to be taught, it will be the Lord that does it. And we must go before him and ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we bow before you, we come as your priests once more. Our Father, Sunday after Sunday, we've come to this point in our worship, remembering that we're priests. During the week, we're out there in Memphis, in the Mid-South, praying that the world will see the gospel in our lives. We're out there being prophets taking the word of God by what we say and by the way we live. But now we come before you not as prophets but as priests. For you've told us, you've commanded us to come and bow before your throne and bring our family in prayer. Bring our marriages in prayer. Bring our neighbors in prayer. Bring our friends and the world around us in prayer. Father, we have prayed Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and we've seen those prayers answered. And we come again for Phil Halley. Father, we pray that you will give him movement in his hands and fingers, give him movement in his arms, give him movement in his legs and feet and toes. Father, help him to regain his speech. We thank you for how you've answered prayer. Thank you for the movement that he does have. Thank you that, Father, once again, he's able to swallow and to eat. And we just pray that, Father, you would reconnect those parts of his brain. And that he again would have that movement. Our Father, bless Sally. Cause her to be a comfort to Phil and Phil to be a comfort to her. We pray that, Father, you would lead them to the appropriate places for rehabilitation. Help Sally, Father, go before her as she makes changes in the house to adjust to Phil's condition. Father, in all those ways, I pray that she'll see and be encouraged that you're there and that you hear her. 
We pray for Ward Walthall this morning, Father. We thank you for his presence here, and we pray that you would cause the doctors to see and hear what they need to see and hear to do what needs to be done. Our Father, bless the gathering on Tuesday evening. What a great time. And we pray that you will continue to anoint that time in the power of your spirit. And speaking of that, our Father, we're opening your word from Revelation 19. And we know, we know, Father, John Sartell cannot teach us so it will make one bit of difference. If we are to be changed on the inside, if we're to grow in Christ, maybe some of us change for the first time. The only way that happens is by the power of your voice, the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray once more, Father, we're your children, and we're asking you to teach us. Tell us the story one more time. Remind us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do we worship God? Do we worship God? In Revelation 18, just for a minute, minute and a half, in Revelation 18, where we were when we were together last in this book, we witnessed the complete destruction of the worldwide, secular, godless, hedonistic, immoral city of Babylon. You remember that. Babylon in Revelation is symbolic of a worldwide culture saturated with materialism, perversity, immorality, and saturated with a hatred for God. In that chapter 18, seven angels of judgment poured out seven bowls of God's wrath and judgment on this worldwide humanistic culture called Babylon. The final bowl tore the great city completely apart. Nothing, nothing was left of her. This was a final judgment with the emphasis upon final. Just look at the verses. That's all we need to do. Revelation 18, verse 21. It's on your scripture sheet. So Babylon, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpist and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard no more. Those words will echo a hope in your mind all day. As you're reminded, there will be a final judgment when God will say, no more, no more. Babylon is destroyed forever. Now, come to the good part. In chapter 19, the scene switches to heaven. 
John hears what sounds like the voice of a great multitude. Now, John has said that several times. You'll notice all through Revelation, when, it, when, when John sees heaven and there's worship, he always comments on the loudness of it, the greatness of it. That doesn't, the loudness, that doesn't mean that they were chaotic sounds of chaos or strident sounds at all. It was with the loud voice of great multitudes, of millions worshiping God. It was beyond anything John had ever heard. The immense chorus of millions was singing in praise to God's great victory on earth. They were singing about what happened in Revelation 18. The worldwide city symbolized by Babylon had been an open rebellion against God, destroying his creation, following after the evil one with a joy and passion in carrying out a genocide against God's people. That city had been eradicated. Now, I know that when some of you look at me, especially younger guys, you think, you know, Sartell is ancient. He's old. Well, I can't remember when the Second World War ended. I was alive. I was a baby. But I understood over the years from my parents and their friends, there was a great celebration when the day that war ended, a celebration that engulfed our country. There were parades, there were spontaneous parties of sheer joy. Churches rang their bells. Some came to churches to pray, giving thanks and praise. Well, why was all that happening? Our country was celebrating the death and destruction of the Third Reich. We were celebrating the end of Hitler, the end of the Nazis. When evil is dealt a death blow, folks, it's time to celebrate. Our country was also celebrating our salvation. We were saved from the evil regime that had murdered six million Jews and was intent on world domination. That's what's happening in Revelation 19. In Revelation 18, a victory over evil. And in Revelation 19, it is being celebrated. That's the reason heaven was exploding with worship. Now, there were three different scenes in this act of worship that cover the first 10 verses. Each scene begins with the multitude singing, Hallelujah! That's a combination of two words. We sang hallelujah this morning. Do you know what you were singing? Hallel, meaning praise. And yah, and so it was hallelujah. The yah was for Yahweh. It was praise God. When you sing hallelujah, you're just saying praise God. Praise God. Each scene, each of these three scenes in these ten verses begins with a multitude singing Hallelujah! Handel's Hallelujah Chorus is based on chapter 19 
of Revelation. It's based on the words that we read for our scripture this morning. Now we've seen that worship is one of the continuing themes of Revelation. Like judgments in Revelation, well, one of the other themes is worship. Now most of the worship we observe in Revelation takes place where? In heaven. What? What a great place. What better place to learn about worship than watching, than observing the worship of heaven. Worship that's not tainted with sin. Genuine heartfelt worship before God himself. This morning, I want us to look at this scene in Revelation 19 and ask the question, what is worship? Now, perhaps you're not a Christian. And you have wondered, why do these Christians do this? Why do these folks do this thing of worship? You know, you're not the only one that asks that question. Many of us as Christians struggle with actual worship. Why do we sing? Why do we praise? Why do we confess our faith and also confess our sins as a part of worship? What is worship? Well, let's jump right to it. We're going to get an answer in this passage. First, this passage tells us that worship is an expression of our love for God. That's what it is. Worship is an expression of our love for God. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. You see the word worship there? The four living creatures worshiped God. The Greek word for worship there is proskunio. It means, you know what it means? Proskunio? It means to kiss, of all things. To kiss. It's a combination of two words. Pros, meaning to or toward. And kunio, meaning kiss. What are we doing in worship? We're kissing toward God. This was the word. Do you understand? This comes from God. This was the word God chose to describe worship. What are we doing? What are we doing at CCRC this morning? We're kissing toward God. We're loving him. What did God tell Israel in the Shema? The Shema is the basic doctrine of the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He doesn't say you shall know he exists. You shall state your belief in him. It says you shall love the Lord your God passionately with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the Shema. That's what God said. When Jesus was asked 
Jesus, what's the great commandment? One of the lawyers came to him and asked him that question in Matthew 22. How did Jesus answer? What, what could you answer? What would you think he would answer? He repeated the Shema. Look at 22:37, Matthew. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is what you do first. This is what you do above all. If, you, if Jesus had been standing at the door when you came in this morning, and you had said, there's Jesus. And he said, I have an opportunity to ask him anything I want to ask him. You say, all right, Jesus, I know you know me. What's the most important thing for me to know? What's the most important thing for me to do? He just told us. That's what that man asked him, and the answer hasn't changed. He would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. What are we doing here this morning? As we sing, as we pray, as we confess our faith, we're expressing our love for God. At CCRC, we have prayed in some form over the last year, Lord, in our worship, keep us from empty ceremony. We've prayed that prayer here in some form or fashion. You see, when we come here and merely run through the order of worship without passion, without love, people, that's not worship. It's empty ceremony. Jesus saw that in the legalistic Pharisees of his day. These were the Pharisees. They were the religious paragons of Israel's society. So as he watched them, he saw them keeping... They were meticulous. He saw them keeping all the outward actions of worship. But there was no heart. They were just going through the motions. There was no love, no passion. And so what did Jesus say to them? In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, by the way, he's quoting Isaiah in the Old Testament. God said the same thing to Israel through Isaiah. And here they were doing it again. And Jesus spoke the same words of Isaiah. Powerful words. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were going through the motions. They were saying the words, but there was no heart. There was no soul. There was no might in it. And what did Jesus add to it? He said, in vain do they worship. What was he saying? In vain. Their worship meant nothing. Their worship was useless. You know why we should be concerned about that? Because he could be saying the same thing about us. Might as well close the doors of CCRC. There's no passion. There's no love. And where there's no passion and love... There's no worship. Oh, folks, we need to hear this. A man once told me, I remember this so well. He said, John, I went to church for years, for years, and never worshipped. 
He said, the people may have worshiped, but I did not. He said, oh, I said the words. But it was just an outward religious exercise. My parents had done it and I did it. And then he said this. He said, everything changed when I first understood the gospel. When, I, when God opened my eyes to see who he was and to see his son, he showed me that I was a sinner who needed a savior. He said, it was then that I understood the father had given his own son for my sins. He says, I came to church like I did before, but now I worshiped. I loved God. I love the Father. I love the Son. I love the Holy Spirit. You know, it's been a joy for me, and I've got to say this here. It's been a joy for me from the very first day on March 6th or 7th, walking in to this gym with you. It's a gym, but it becomes a sanctuary at about 10.15 or 10.30. Because God dwells here. And there is a joy and there is a passion in this worship. But we need to hear those words. Because that passion and that love will surely go away. Unless we understand that worship is an expression of our love for him. And there's no worship without that love. Worship is the great line of demarcation, and this is huge. Do you know worship? What's the difference between the world and the Christian? The number one difference is worship. It's the great line of demarcation. Sometimes the world will join with us as Christians in feeding the hungry and helping the poor. They will join us in providing Homes for children who have no parents. For providing homes for the homeless. Those are noble efforts. The world says, we'll help with that. But the world will not join us in worship. The passionate worship of God. Worship makes no sense to the world. Singing in love and praise to the Creator. Singing in love and praise to Christ. It sounds foreign. It sounds silly. I don't want my friends to see me doing that. God told Israel through Moses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That means our love drives us to worship with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our might. Is that what we're doing? Is that what you're doing as an individual? See, it's not just a corporate thing. If you're, if, if you're sitting there saying, if we're sitting there saying, well, I'm sure glad John's talking to the whole church. It's not about my individual worship. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because the congregation can only be a congregation of passionate love and worship for God if we as individuals are filled with that passion and filled with that love of God that brings us to worship.
Worship is an expression of our love for God. Secondly, worship is an expression of our reverence for God's transcendence. Look again at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. They fell down. That does not mean they were knocked down. It does not mean that they lost their balance and fell sideways or backwards. They purposely fell on their faces in reverence to God. What is reverence? We show reverence when the judge walks into the courtroom and everyone stands. That's a sort of reverence for the law and for the judge's position. People bow before the king or queen of a country, of their country. Why? To show reverence, to show respect for that position. Folks, what's God's position? There's no one. There is no one. <laughs> There's no one like him. He is the creator. I'm so glad we got those telescopes out there telling us that the universe is not made up of a hundred thousand galaxies. I'm so glad we got those cameras out there, those telescopes telling us there are a hundred billion galaxies. You know, all through Scripture and, and even to this very day, when people think of the single most powerful thing there is, the ultimate answer is the universe. Its vastness is immeasurable. We can't get our minds around the vastness of it. Don't you love those pictures from the wonderful telescopes in space? I know you do because you say things to me about it. Well, know this. God made that universe. It's not omnipotent. It's not eternal. He is. He is vaster than the universe. Now, if you're English majors, you know this. But when I wrote that this week about the vastness of God, he's vast. I said, he's more vast. I said, I'm not sure that's right. I looked it up. It's vaster. Comparative. He's vaster. The universe doesn't compare. We look at the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, and, and we look at in awe and wonder, and well we should. But with more awe and more wonder, we look at God. He is transcendent above all. And the cross did not change that transistence. His grace does not change that transistence. He defines reference for us in verse 5 of Revelation 19. Look at verse 5. It comes right after verse 4. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you who servants who fear him, small and great. That could be translated, who reverence him. Reverence is a righteous fear. One of the best pictures of this reverence. You want to know what it looks like? God gave it to us. And I've read it to you. I imagine I've read this to you about every six Sundays. Maybe more than that. And I'll read it sometime in the next six Sundays. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. What's he saying? Transcendent. I saw him high and lifted up. Transcendent. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each having six scenes. And with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. That's what reverence looks like right there. Isaiah has this panoramic vision of God in the temple. The great seraphim are worshiping God. They're sinless, but they worshiped. They've known God a long time for millennia and yet there's still wonder. Because of his transistence, their worship has not become casual. There is still all reverence in response to his transcendence. Would you look at this scene and say, hey, Seraphim, we need to adjust this and get a little bit of humanity about it. We need to become, we, we want to be more casual, more familiar in our worship. Is that what you would do? Is that what you would say? That is what the evangelical church, much of the evangelical church is saying about Isaiah chapter 6. Whoa. I love the scene taking place in the temple in Isaiah. It's in the temple. Well, this is a sanctuary this morning, and God is present. He's meeting with his people. If the veil could be pulled back, we would see the same seraphim, those very same seraphim, covering their faces before the glory of God. Does a holy reverence fill this room on Sunday as we worship? Again, there's a line of demarcation between the Christian and the world in this thing of worship. In Romans 3, Paul has, has made, been making this list of the sins that are characteristic of the world. And how does he sum up? What's the one characteristic that sums up all the world's sins? He says this in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's, he's saying there's no reverence of God. You want to know what that looks like? You want to know what it looks like every day? Just turn on the television. And just walk through. I, don't, you can, I use New York and Chicago, Miami, Las Vegas, New Orleans, San Francisco. I need to stop doing that. Just walk through Memphis. That's all you have to do. There's no fear of God. Worship is an expression of your love for God. Worship is an expression of our reverence for God's transcendence. Thirdly, worship is an expression of submission to God's reign. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be of the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty, this is that noise again, the peals of thunder. This multitude was singing, this multitude was praising, and it was so huge it sounded like thunder. Hallelujah. 
For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns, circle reigns. Worship is not just about love of God. It's not just a reverence for God in his transcendence. It is submission to God's reign. It's submission to God's rule, to his lordship. Every Sunday when in this place, we're bowing to his lordship. We're bowing to his reign. It's not just a one-time confession. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, I confessed him to be Lord of my life. That's not, that's, no. He brings his people back to it every week, every Lord's Day. We have to come back. He's on the throne and he reigns and in worship, we're bowing before his reign. You know what happens when Christians are in the grips of some particular habitual sin? You know what happens? I've seen it over and over again in counseling as church members and some sin grips our lives and just seems to own us. When we know we are willfully choosing this particular sin, mark my word, we tend to stay away from worship. I've seen it over and over again. Why? Because we're reminded in worship of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're bowing before the reign of God Almighty. And we can't be shaking our fist in his face Monday through Saturday and going and pretending that everything's okay on Sunday. It won't work. And we know that in our souls. Worship is an expression of our love for God. Worship is an expression of our reverence for God's transcendence. Words are is an expression of submission to God's reign, fourthly. And there's more than this, but this will suffice. This is what we see in this chapter. If you've been asleep, wake up right now to hear this. This is so powerful. Worship is an expression of love, reverence, and submission that belongs only to God. This worship must not be given to anyone else or any other thing. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, now this this angel's been with John, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. Now here's the scene. The angel had been there throughout this observation of Babylon's demise and destruction. And he had been there to view this overwhelming worship of heaven. Now this was an angel. This was, might have been one of those massive, great, huge seraphim. And he says, write this, John. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said, these are the true words of God. And John is just overwhelmed. Here's the worship of heaven. Here's this massive angel telling him. And what did he do? He fell down and worshipped the angel. And what was the angel's response? There's no way that our translation captures it. That angel said, 
don't you dare do that. The angel was horrified. He went on, I'm a mere creature like you. You worship God. Your worship belongs to God. To God alone. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, there are words that we should memorize. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Evangelical ministers and congregations need to keep the exchange between the angel and John on the front burner of their memories. Of, mem of our memories. We need to keep this in front of us. What's the word angel mean? It means messenger. Messenger from God. The minister's supposed to be only a messenger. Well, he bowed down to the messenger, not to the God of the messenger. Congregations sometimes put their ministers on such pedestals that it's like the minister is their deity, their last word. Some ministers are so gifted in preaching that their people forget that all true preaching is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Ministers are culpable in this. Some of us, I'll say we, we want to be on festivals. We live for it. Sometimes we act as if ordination makes us some kind of assistant deity. The theme of every communication between ministers and congregation ought to be, you worship God and God alone. He does not give his worship to another. This morning, I couldn't help it. I had to get up and put on a red sweater vest. It comes. I know you're thinking, what in the world is John doing? Jill, I hadn't lost my mind. Just hang on to the end of it. So uh, this comes from Nairn, Scotland, from the golf course. It's the only thing I have. No, I have several others, but this was what I could wear this morning that fit. The reason I'm wearing it is because my friend and a minister that many of you heard for years and years as he visited Independent. I think it was yesterday, it was certainly the latter part of the week, that Dr. Eric Alexander, the retired minister of the great Tron Church in Glasgow, went home to be with the Lord. He was a good friend, a friend of mine, a friend independent. And I know of no other preacher in the world that personified what we're preaching this morning, like Eric Alexander. He was the greatest pulpit preacher Sunday after Sunday that I know that I ever heard. But he personified this. He would have said, you worship God. Know where it comes from. One other thing. 
you're not a Christian, this morning, it might be a good thing if you began to worship him. Because you've been giving your worship, if you're not a Christian, you've been giving your worship to either money or pleasure or success or marriage or education or family, whatever it is. But whatever being, whatever you've been giving in love, passion, and worship, whatever you've sold your life out for, if it's not God, if it's not the Almighty, then you're giving your worship to another and it belongs to God. And I would encourage you this morning, right now, as we sing the final hymn, you sing with us. And from this point on, you give your worship to him and him alone. Our hymn is most appropriate. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah, O oh my soul. Hymn number 57.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.